Volume Three, Part Six of Herodotus Histories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Histories, Volume Three by Herodotus of Halicarnassus, translated by E. D. Godley, Part Six. When Xerxes saw from Therma the very great height of the Thessalian mountains Olympus and Ossa, and learned that the Peneus flows through them in a narrow pass, which was the way that led into Thessaly, he desired to view the mouth of the Peneus because he intended to march by the upper road through the highland people of Macedonia to the country of the Perheba and the town of Gaunus. This, it was told him, was the safest way. He did exactly as he desired. He embarked on a Sidonian ship, which he always used when he had some such business in hand, and hoisted his signal for the rest also to put out to sea, leaving his land army where it was. Great wonder took him when he came and viewed the mouth of the Peneus, and calling his guides, he asked them if it were possible to turn the river from its course, and lead it into the sea by another way. Thessaly, as tradition has it, was in old times a lake enclosed all round by high mountains. On its eastern side it is fenced in by the joining of the lower parts of the mountains Pelion and Ossa, to the north by Olympus, to the west by Pindus, towards the south and the southerly wind by Othrys. In the middle, then, of this ring of mountains lies the Vale of Thessaly. A number of rivers pour into this vale, the most notable of which are Peneus, Apidanus, Onoconus, Enipeus, Pemesis. These five, while they flow towards their meeting-place from the mountains which surround Thessaly, have their several names, until their waters all unite and issue into the sea by one narrow passage. As soon as they are united, the name of the Peneus prevails, making the rest nameless. In ancient days, it is said, there was not yet this channel and outfall, but those rivers and the Bobean lake, which was not yet named, had the same volume of water as now, and thereby turned all Thessaly into a sea. Now the Thessalians say that Poseidon made the passage by which the Peneus flows. This is reasonable, for whoever believes that Poseidon is the shaker of the earth, and that rifts made by earthquakes are the work of that god, will conclude, upon seeing the passage, that it is of Poseidon's making. It was manifest to me that it must have been an earthquake which forced the mountains apart. Xerxes asked his guides if there were any other outlet for the Peneus into the sea, and they, with their full knowledge of the matter, answered him. The river, O king, has no other way into the sea, but this alone. This is so because there is a ring of mountains around the whole of Thessaly. Upon hearing this, Xerxes said, These Thessalians are wise men. This, then, was the primary reason for their precaution long before, when they changed to a better mind, for they perceived that their country would be easily and speedily conquerable. It would only have been necessary to let the river out over their land by barring the channel with a dam, and to turn it from its present bed, so that the whole of Thessaly, with the exception of the mountains, might be under water. This he said with regard in particular to the sons of Aluas, the Thessalians who were the first Greeks to surrender themselves to the king. Xerxes supposed that when they offered him friendship they spoke for the whole of their nation. After delivering this speech and seeing what he had come to see, he sailed back to Therma. Xerxes stayed for many days in the region of Perea while the third part of his army was clearing a road over the Macedonian mountains, so that the whole army might pass by that way to the Perhebian country. Now it was that the heralds who had been sent to Hellas to demand earth, some empty-handed, some bearing earth and water, returned. 
Among those who paid that tribute were the Thessalians, Dolopes, Enians, Perhebians, Locrians, Magnesians, Melians, Achaeans of Pythia, Thebans, and all the Boeotians except the men of Thespiae and Plataea. Against all of these the Greeks who declared war with the foreigner entered into a sworn agreement, which was this, that if they should be victorious, they would dedicate to the god of Delphi the possessions of all Greeks who had a free will surrendered themselves to the Persians. Such was the agreement sworn by the Greeks. To Athens and Sparta, Xerxes sent no heralds to demand earth, and this he did for the following reason. When Darius had previously sent men with this same purpose, those who made the request were cast at the one city into the pit, and at the other into a well, and bidden to obtain their earth and water for the king from these locations. What calamity befell the Athenians for dealing in this way with the heralds I cannot say, save that their land and their city were laid waste. I think, however, that there was another reason for this, and not the aforesaid. Be that as it may, the anger of Talthybius, Agamemnon's herald, fell upon the Lacedaemonians. At Sparta there is a shrine of Talthybius and descendants of Talthybius called Talbithidae, who have the special privilege of conducting all embassies from Sparta. Now there was a long period after the incident I have mentioned above, during which the Spartans were unable to obtain good omens from sacrifice. The Lacedaemonians were grieved and dismayed by this, and frequently called assemblies, making a proclamation inviting some Lacedaemonian to give his life for Sparta. Then two Spartans of noble birth and great wealth, Spurthius, son of Aneristus, and Bulus, son of Nicholas, undertook of their own free will to make atonement to Xerxes for Darius's heralds, who had been killed at Sparta. Thereupon the Spartans sent these men to Medea for execution. Worthy of admiration was these men's deed of daring, and so also were their sayings. On their way to Susa, they came to Hedarnus, a Persian, who was general of the coast of Asia. He entertained and feasted them as his guests, and as they sat at his board, he asked, Lacedaemonians, why do you shun the king's friendship? You can judge from what you see of me and my condition how well the king can honor men of worth. So might it be with you, if you would but put yourself in the king's hands, being as you are of proven worth in his eyes, and every one of you might by his commission be a ruler of Hellas. To this the Spartans answered, Your advice to us, Hidarnes, is not completely sound. One half of it rests on knowledge, but the other on ignorance. You know well how to be a slave, but you, who have never tasted freedom, do not know whether it is sweet or not. Were you to taste of it, not with spears you would counsel us to fight for it. No, but with axes. This was their answer to Hidarnes. From there they came to Susa, into the king's presence, and when the guards commanded and would have compelled them to fall down about the king, they said they would never do it. This they would refuse even if they were thrust down headlong, for it was not their custom, say they, to bow to mortal men, nor was that the purpose of their coming. Having averted that, they next said, The Lacedaemonians have sent us, O king of the Medes, in requital for the slaying of your heralds at Sparta, to make atonement for their death, and more to that effect. To this Xerxes, with great magnanimity, replied that he would not intimate the Lacedaemonians. You, said he, made havoc of all human law by slaying heralds. But I will not do that for which I censure you, nor by putting you in turn to death will I set the Lacedaemonians free from this guilt. This conduct on the part of the Spartans succeeded for a time in allaying the anger of Talthybius, in spite of the fact that Spurthius and Bulus returned to Sparta. 
Long after that, however, it rose up again in the war between the Peloponnesians and Athenians, as the Lacedaemonians say. That seems to me to be an indication of something divine. It was just that the wrath of Talthybius descended on ambassadors, nor abated until it was satisfied. The venting of it, however, on the sons of those men who went up to the king to appease it, namely on Nicholas, son of Bulus, and Anaristus, son of Sperthius, that Anaristus who landed a merchant ship's crew at the Tyrnithian settlement of Halia and took it, makes it plain to me that this was the divine result of Talthybius's anger. These two had been sent by the Lacedaemonians as ambassadors to Asia, and betrayed by the Thracian king Siltalchus, son of Tyrius, and Nymphodorus, son of Pythias, of Abdera. They were made captive at Byzantha on the Hellespont, and carried away to Attica, where the Athenians put them, and with them Aristes, son of Adamantus, a Corinthian, to death. This happened many years after the king's expedition, and I return now to the course of my history. The professed intent of the king's march was to attack Athens, but in truth all Hellas was his aim. This the Greeks had long since learned, but not all of them regarded the matter alike. Those of them who had paid the tribute of earth and water to the Persian were of good courage, thinking that the foreigner would do them no harm, but they who had refused tribute were afraid, since there were not enough ships in Hellas to do battle with their invader. Furthermore, the greater part of them had no stomach for grappling with the war, but were making haste to side with the Persian. Here I am forced to declare an opinion which will be displeasing to most, but I will not refrain from saying what seems to me to be true. Had the Athenians been panic-struck by the threatened peril and left their own country, or had they not indeed left it but remained and surrendered themselves to Xerxes, none would have attempted to withstand the king by sea. What would have happened on land if no one had resisted the king by sea is easy enough to determine. Although the Peloponnesians had built not one but many walls across the isthmus for their defense, they would nevertheless have been deserted by their allies, these having no choice or free will in the matter, but seeing their cities taken one by one by the foreign fleet, until at last they would have stood alone. They would then have put up quite a fight and perished nobly. Such would have been their fate. Perhaps, however, when they saw the rest of Hellas siding with the enemy, they would have made terms with Xerxes. In either case, Hellas would have been subdued by the Persians, for I cannot see what advantage could accrue from the walls built across the isthmus, while the king was the master of the seas. As it is, to say that the Athenians were the saviors of Hellas is to hit the truth. It was the Athenians who held the balance. Whichever side they joined was sure to prevail. Choosing that Greece should preserve her freedom, the Athenians roused to battle the other Greek states, which had not yet gone over to the Persians, and after the gods were responsible for driving the king off. Nor were they moved to desert Hellas by the threatening oracles which came from Delphi, and sorely dismayed them, but they stood firm and had the courage to meet the invader of their country. The Athenians had sent messages to Delphi, asking that an oracle be given them, and when they had performed all due rites at the temple and sat down in the inner hall, the priestess, whose name was Aristines, gave them this answer. Wretches, why do you linger here? Rather flee from your houses and city, flee to the ends of the earth from the circle embattled of Athens. The head will not remain in its place, nor in the body, nor the feet beneath, nor the hands, nor the parts between. But all is ruined, for fire, and the headlong god of war, speeding in a Syrian chariot, will bring you low. Many a fortress, too, not yours alone, will he shatter. Many a shrine of the gods will he give to the flame for devouring, sweating for fear they stand, 
and quaking for dread of the enemy. Running with gore are their roofs, foreseeing the stress of their sorrow. Therefore I bid you depart from the sanctuary. Have courage to lighten your evil. When the Athenian messengers heard that, they were very greatly dismayed, and gave themselves up for lost by reason of the evil foretold. Then Timon, son of Androbulus, as notable a man as any Delphian, advised them to take vows of supplication, and in the guise of suppliants approach the oracle a second time. The Athenians did exactly this. Lord, they said, regard mercifully these suppliant vows which we bring you, and give us some better answer concerning our country. Otherwise we will not depart from your temple, but remain here until we die. Thereupon the priestess gave them this second oracle. Vainly does Pallas strive to appease great Zeus of Olympus. Words of entreaty are vain, and so too cunning counsels of wisdom. Nevertheless I will speak to you again of strength admantine. All will be taken and lost that the sacred border of Kekrops holds in keeping to-day, and the dales divine of Catherine. Yet a wood-built wall will by Zeus all-seeing be granted to the trito-born, a stronghold for you and your children. Await not the host of horse and foot coming from Asia, nor be still, but turn your back and withdraw from the foe. Truly a day will come when you will meet him face to face. Divine Salamis, you will bring death to woman's sons, when the corn is scattered or the harvest gathered in. The second answer seemed to be, and really was, more merciful than the first, and the envoys, writing it down, departed for Athens. When the messengers had left Delphi and laid the oracle before the people, there was much inquiry concerning its meaning, and among the many opinions which were uttered, two contrary ones were especially worthy of note. Some of the elder men said that the god's answer signified that the Acropolis should be saved, for in old time the Acropolis of Athens had been fenced by a thorn hedge, which by their interpretation was the wooden wall. But others supposed that the god was referring to their ships, and they were for doing nothing but equipping these. Those who believed their ships to be the wooden wall were disabled by the last two verses of the oracle. Divine Salamis, you will bring death to women's sons, when the corn is scattered or the harvest gathered in. These verses confounded the opinion of those who said that their ships were the wooden wall, for the readers of oracles took the verses to mean that they should offer battle by sea near Salamis, and be there overthrown. Now there was a certain Athenian, by name and title Themistocles, son of Neocles, who had lately risen to be among their chief men. He claimed that the readers of oracles had incorrectly interpreted the whole of the oracle, and reasoned that if the verse really pertained to the Athenians, it would have been formulated in less mild language, calling Salamis cruel rather than divine, seeing that its inhabitants were to perish. Correctly understood, the god's oracle was spoken not of the Athenians but of their enemies, and his advice was that they should believe their ships to be the wooden wall, and so make ready to fight by sea. When Themistocles put forward this interpretation, the Athenians judged him to be a better counsellor than the readers of oracles, who would have had them prepare for no sea-fight, and, in short, offer no resistance at all, but leave Attica and settle in some other country. The advice of Themistocles had prevailed on a previous occasion. The revenues from the mines at Larium had brought great wealth into the Athenians' treasury, and when each man was to receive ten drachma for his share, Themistocles persuaded the Athenians to make no such division, but to use the money to build two hundred ships for the war, that is, for the war with Aegina. This was in fact the war the outbreak of which saved Hellas by compelling the Athenians to become seamen. 
The ships were not used for the purpose for which they were built, but later came to serve Hellas in her need. These ships, then, had been made and were already there for the Athenians' service, and now they had to build yet others. In their debate, after the giving of the oracle, they accordingly resolved that they would put their trust in the god and meet the foreign invader of Hellas with the whole power of their fleet, ships and men, and with all other Greeks who were so minded. These oracles, then, had been given to the Athenians. All the Greeks who were concerned about the general welfare of Hellas met in conference and exchanged guarantees. They resolved in debate to make an end of all their feuds and wars against each other, whatever the cause from which they arose, among others that were in course at that time, the greatest was the war between the Athenians and the Aegenitans. Presently, learning that Xerxes was at Sardis with his army, they planned to send men into Asia to spy out the king's doings, and to dispatch messengers, some to Argos, who should make the Argives their brothers in arms against the Persian, some to Gelon, son of Denomenes, in Sicily, some to Corsera, praying aid for Hellas, and some to Crete, this they did, in the hope that, since the danger threatened all Greeks alike, all of Greek blood might unite and work jointly for one common end. Now the power of Gelon was said to be very great, surpassing by far any power in Hellas. Being so resolved and having composed their quarrels, they first sent three men as spies into Asia. These came to Sardis and took note of the king's army. They were discovered, however, and after examination by the generals of the land army, were led away for execution. They were condemned to die, but when Xerxes heard of it, he blamed the judgment of his generals and sent some of his guards, charging them to bring the spies before him if they should be found alive. They were found still living and brought into the king's presence. Then Xerxes, having inquired of them the purpose of their coming, ordered his guards to lead them around and show them his whole army. When the spies had seen all to their heart's content, they were to send them away unharmed to whatever country they pleased. The reason alleged for his command was this. Had the spies been put to death, the Greeks would not so soon have learned the unspeakable greatness of his power, and the Persians would have done their enemy no great harm by putting three men to death. Xerxes said that if they should return to Hellas, the Greeks would hear of his power and would surrender their peculiar freedom before the expedition with the result that there would be no need to march against them. This was like that other saying of Xerxes, when he was at Abydos, and saw ships laden with corn sailing out of the Pontus, through the Hellespont, on their way to Aegina and the Peloponnese. His counsellors, perceiving that they were enemy ships, were for taking them, and looked to the king for orders to do so. Xerxes, however, asked them where the ships were sailing, and they answered, To your enemies, sire, carrying corn. Xerxes then answered, And are not we too sailing to the same places as they, with corn among all our other provisions? What wrong are they doing us in carrying food there? End of Volume 3, Part 6